Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Click Millionaire Success Show with your host, Scott Fox. It's time for another educational and entertaining episode that can help you work less and live more with your own internet lifestyle business. Well, hello there, friends. It's Scott Fox, back for a long overdue edition of this podcast. I haven't done this in quite a while, and I've been meaning to, so I apologize for being away for so long. I get great feedback when I do these, but I just found that the work and thought that it took to not only create them but promote them ended up being, uh, well, more than I could integrate with all the other things I had going on for a while. So uh, I'm back, and I would like to keep this simple. And so I have an offer for you, which is pretty straightforward, I think. I'm going to try to do more podcasts, but I'm not going to market them. (laughs) So if you like what's going on, if you find the information I'm sharing helpful, would you please write a review on iTunes or share the show with your friends? Something like that. We'll keep it simple. I'll provide the information for free if you can help me out with marketing so that I know somebody's listening. And if you want to participate in the show, you can email me, radio at scottfox.com. That's radio at scottfox.com. Just send me an email. Let me know that uh, you find this helpful, that you find it interesting, that you'd like me to keep doing it, ways that I could improve, uh, things you'd like to hear differently, or especially if you have questions or topics you'd like me to address. I'd be happy to do that for you. That's kind of my goal. My thing is to help entrepreneurs. And, um, well, here I am to do that. So so what I've been doing lately and what we're going to talk about today is some specific questions. I've been running some masterminds groups uh, locally, uh, face-to-face meetings. And last night I had about, oh, I don't know, 40-some people in a room uh, provided by our friends at WeWork. And um, we sat around in a big circle and we talked through a bunch of issues that were of value to these local entrepreneurs. Now, I think these might be the same sorts of issues that are facing you and your startup or your startup idea because you're not quite there to actually having a startup yet. Or there are tactical and strategic issues where you could use a little help. So this is going to be kind of a grab bag of topics. But if you're an entrepreneurial person, trust me, all of these are issues that you're going to encounter sooner or later. And if you have feedback on any of them afterwards, well, please, by all means, again, you can email me and I'll update and uh, contribute your thoughts to our discussion on a future episode. So radio at scottfox.com is the contact address, or of course you can go to scottfox.com anytime. I put up a new one, by the way, if you haven't been over there lately. Uh, The site looks a lot better. It was way overdue for a facelift. And there's a contact form there at scottfox.com, and uh, you can reach me on any number of topics if you'd like to. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to keep this simple, like I said, and I'd appreciate your help uh, with feedback and marketing if you like it. Okay, so the first question we're going to talk about was from a gentleman who had a tech uh, idea, an app that he wants to create, uh, specifically in the travel industry, and he was concerned about sharing it with developers who he didn't know how to protect his idea because it seemed very obvious to him and his partners that if anybody else saw it, they would immediately, well, basically want to rip him off. (laughs) So he's trying to figure out how to find developers that he can trust and how to implement this idea with when he's not a technologist himself, but he needs somebody else to build it. 
So a couple qualifying points here. Uh, what I'm going to do in this format here is to um, offer my suggestions in response to the question as well as the suggestions from our group. So you're getting not just my feedback, but from the other folks in the audience. And like I said, we had 40 plus people, very diverse group of all stripes um, and uh, many successful entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, uh, financial folks, um, attorneys, uh, entrepreneurs, marketing people, developers, etc. So I'm going to try to boil this down and sh uh, share with you the best ideas that came out of these discussions. Okay, so back to the question. The question was how to identify an entrepreneur's helper when the entrepreneur is not technical but needs tech folks to build his uh, application and not give away the store, essentially, and have them rip him off. So some of the answers were um, things that might seem elementary to some of you, but which were very helpful to this person. So if you're new to this kind of thinking or you have a similar concern, I'll share these ideas with you as well. And they were starting with legal approach. So the legal approach, of course, is to document the relationship. You find a developer, and these days uh, most often those are found either word of mouth or through a service like Upwork, which is a platform, upwork.com, where you can find freelancers and uh, service-oriented providers of all kinds, uh, including, of course, app developers and uh, software developers, but anything else you'd like as well, to, uh, translation, uh, graphic design, attorneys, engineers, all kinds of folks are available there at upwork.com if you'd like to give that platform a try. So uh, presuming that you went and found a developer over on Upwork, then how do you, uh, how do you know if you can trust this person? Well, like I said, you can go the legal route uh, is the first thing. You can have non-disclosure agreements, um, non-competition agreements, things like that. You can put legal documents around the relationship. And that's somewhat of the, one of the benefits of a platform like Upwork. They have some standard nomenclature and documentation that um, both parties agree to when organizing a project through their service. Now, they may not be as complete as you want, or they may not uh, cover the exact ideas or situation that you're dealing with, but it's a good start. Um, as well as, I should mention, Upwork is kind of like eBay in the sense that it ranks people. People have a number of stars uh, next to their names and reviews so that you can look at people and, and check out the reviews. Just like the reviews on eBay or Amazon, you have to be a little bit, um, well, suspicious might be strong, but take it with a grain of salt, right? Because everybody tries to show their best side on those reviews. Um, so you do want to kind of go through them quickly uh, or, and thoroughly and make sure that you can trust this person with your idea. Okay, so... Let's start with that, actually. Start with a, a platform that allows you rankings and ratings, then a legal coat of arms or a, a shield, I guess you'd call it, with uh, non-disclosure, uh, non-compete, and, um, of course, the um, amount of payment, you know, the basic contract. What do you get very specifically? What are you getting, uh, including what rights you have, and having the rights that of anything that they create being signed over to you. Um, that's typically uh, given in an employment type situation. It's not as obvious in a contractor situation like most folks do when they're uh, developing an app. So you'd want to put that in there too. All these are concepts, if you're not familiar with these legal concepts I'm referring to, you could Google any of them and find sample forms online that you could use. Um, or um, again, you can email uh, radio at scottfox.com and we can delve into them a little more deeply if there's something specific you'd like to talk about. Okay, so that's the legal point of view. Um, the next step on the legal uh, road would be to talk about intellectual property protection, like patents or trademarks or copyrights. 
Now, copyright probably doesn't apply here because that's more for creative works, and we're talking about an app, although I guess you could copyright the interface design or the logo, something like that. Uh, patents are what people usually think about when they're talking about technology innovation like this, such as the source code for an app or a piece of software. A patent is a much more complex filing. Um, I would guess these days uh, probably five to $10,000 um, and can take quite a while, but is certainly a valuable thing. Uh, however, it is limited in life generally, I think, to 17 years, although they can be renewed, I think, under some special circumstances. The trick is there are two kinds of patents. There are design patents and utility patents. Um, and then there's a business method patents as well. So I'm not speaking as a lawyer here, but just kind of a, a layman's approach to this is that you could try to get the thing patented, uh, and that would give you exclusive rights to the use of that invention uh, for that set period of time. And again, I'm talking about U.S. law here, not in other countries, although the U.S. patent regime pretty much dominates um, most English-speaking commerce anyway. Um, so those are things you could explore if the thing was patentable. Uh, a design patent is probably not so useful because somebody could just change the design a little bit and come up with their own patent uh, as well. So you'd really want to be looking at some sort of utility patent. One of our members suggested that a trademark might actually be the most effective way to protect the, uh, the design or the, the tool uh, because a trademark lasts uh, somewhat indefinitely, many more years than um, a patent might. Um, I'm not clear exactly how a trademark would apply to a piece of software, but that would be something worth looking at if this is the kind of concern that, um, that you have with your business. So that's uh, the legal overview. Um, the, now, here's the problem with the, the legal overview. Uh, well, the patents and trademarks perhaps might work, but the, but the, the jurisdictional issues that come up with um, non-competes and employment contracts and, and NDAs, things like that, is that a lot of the folks that you're going to find online who will do affordable technology work are not reachable by American law. So if you're an American or, or maybe UK or, or some similar um, uh, advanced country and you're ad trying to hold people who are not residents of your country to the legal uh, schemes that are in effect in your country, it basically it, – it's really hard to do <laughs> because say you have developers in this example last night. We were talking about um, having developers in Serbia. Well, okay, you can have these guys in Serbia sign anything you want. But how are you going to enforce that, right? You're going to get – if you get into a problem, it's just going to bankrupt you to try to enforce a U.S. contract of any sort against people in Serbia. Um, and essentially, it's, it's just not going to work. Um, and even the legal regime here in the United States is unfortunately clogged up by money. And if you have – even if you have ironclad perfect contracts with developers who might be in, in Alabama or Washington or Michigan or something, even those folks – you're going to have to sue them to enforce performance, and that's a very expensive road. So um, I would suggest that legal is a good foundation. A gentleman named Anthony made some good points about that last night, uh, but he was countered by another guy with a lot of experience in software named Pete, and they had a nice chat about it, and then a bunch of other folks chimed in, of course. Um, but I think that uh, legal is the bottom line. You want to start there with good documentation. Um, and you only want to enter into that with people that you've researched thoroughly. And that came revealed probably the most valuable point we had, which was references. 
uh, you've got to really trust somebody that you're going to work really closely with. And references are a key component of that, especially if you're going to be working with someone that you may never even meet face-to-face. So checking references um, should go beyond just seeing how many gold stars they have next to their name online or how many reviews of their projects they have. Because uh, as you know, those reviews can be bought and paid for. They might all be by the person's cousin anyway. <laughs> so you want to go do some real checking on references. And a couple points about that are that when someone claims something as a project, you need to get them on the phone and say, you know, okay, what exactly did you do? Because anything that's complex enough to be a showcase project probably wasn't done by one person. And at the same time, it's easy enough for anybody to complain to claim that they were involved in something big. You know, they could say, hey, I built that fancy website or that beautiful app. And um, But the problem is that there probably was a whole team. And um, they may or may not have been on the team at all. So you want to get them on the phone and or maybe on Skype so that you can see them or FaceTime, you know, see their face and really try to talk to them a little bit. Say, what did you really do? Show me and do a screen share. Say, what did you do there? And dig into it a bit and figure out if there are other people who can validate that that was indeed their contribution as well as what kind of timeline and budget was involved so that you can see if that matches the kinds of needs that you have. So those are a few ideas about um, helping you figure out how to find someone that you can trust. Um, at the end of the day, legal and interviews and references are all pieces of a larger puzzle that when you're working with outsourced contractors really is about finding someone and establishing expectations that are shared and trust that is also shared. Um, money of, is, of course, a way to incentivize people. You might also consider offering them some sort of incentive pay, either cash or even a piece of the business, You know, not necessarily equity, but maybe um, a kind of bonus or a revenue share if the thing does well. People tend to do better work when they have more incentives, right? So you can think about that as well. You're liable to be able to trust them more if they are feeling like they're more engaged and willing, uh, maybe going to profit from the activity. Another idea was, uh, just to wrap this one up and we'll go on to the next question, was that you could actually split the work out among several different contractors so none of them saw the whole picture. And that way maybe you could keep it uh, separate pieces uh, apart from each other so that the entire idea wasn't visible to any one contractor. And I think that might uh, theoretically be a good idea, but practically speaking, that sounds really hard, right? Then you've got three relationships to manage or more, and then there's still the matter of at some point, somebody who is technical is going to have to integrate the thing, and somebody's going to be able to see under the hood. So um, at the end of the day, I think what really matters in this kind of execution is to find the best person you can to get the thing done. And you've really, as a non-technical founder, here's the, here's the quick millionaire's lifestyle business uh, input from me, Scott Fox, personally. What's really going to make the difference for an application like this is the implementation done by those who really care. And you've got to do your best to find someone you can trust to work out the deal and to do the job, the technical work that you can't do. But you've also got to recognize that most technical people, they want to do technical stuff. That's what they do. So um, they may rip off your idea, but the odds of them implementing it, well, the odds of them ripping it off are fairly small. And they're even smaller if you do the sort of due diligence I just went through. And they're even smaller if you have good contracts and good reference checks and all that sort of stuff. Um, But most importantly, even if they do somehow copy you, it's up to you who have the industry expertise and the motivation and who had the genius idea to do this thing 
to develop it. And the odds are that you care more and are going to do more with it than anybody else who copies it. Even if you posted the code for free right out there on the homepage of Yahoo or something, um, the odds are that it's your baby and you're going to make it happen. So I believe that you are the differentiating factor more than any set of legal agreements or um, negotiations. All right. So that's a kind of a wandering but hopefully thorough discussion to think about how you, uh, my Click Millionaires listener, might think about engaging with IT professionals, especially those who are outside of your country uh, and uh, who you may never even meet. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's number one. Um, this is Scott Fox from the uh, Click Millionaires book and several other books, as well as the Masterminds Forum. And uh, what we're talking about is questions from the Masterminds Group meeting that I had last night. And we had, like I said, about 40 different people there. And if this kind of thing is interesting to you, but you don't live in Southern California near me, please come over to mastermindsforum.com and join the online version of this, and we'd be happy to help you. I'm there myself every day and could help you out with your questions uh, in a forum, text-based format. All right, so our next question. Our next question was from a gentleman uh, from uh, Shanghai, China, who happened to be in town, and he has a great idea that I don't, I'm not going to get too specific about, <laughs> but it's a, it's a marketplace uh, platform somewhere between, um, well, sort of an Airbnb, but on a smaller scale, uh, sharing economy sort of idea. And his concern was how to approach investors. He hadn't really done this before. He has the idea, and he wants to figure out what he needs to start talking to other people. So here are some tips on that. The first was one of our guys, uh, one of our members suggested that he needs a pitch deck. And, of course, anyone who's read my books would probably understand that. You need a PowerPoint that summarizes in maybe five or ten pages what the problem is you're solving, who your target market is, um, what competitors are out there, how you'll make money from this, and then how much money you want and what you do with it. Sort of the basic business case of this. And that's called a pitch deck. And that kind of introductory document is a, is a standard and a necessary thing to show to anybody. Uh, it's usually spread out over a half dozen slides in a PowerPoint type format. Or you might do it just in an executive summary as a page or two of text as well. But those are the things that you need at least to start. So that was a, a start for him. And there are templates for that sort of thing online. If you search like pitch deck template, you'll find examples of how you could structure this yourself. So what did he need beyond that? So uh, this gentleman was new enough to this that even that was kind of news to him. But we added a couple more valuable points that maybe would be helpful to you too. So the other thing that investors are going to be looking for is some um, analysis of your minimum viable product and its potential appeal. So minimum viable product is basically could he do some sort of test could he show that people are interested in this thing, even if it doesn't actually work? Kind of a fake it till you make it sort of thing. Could he put up a website that showed that made an offer and then market that maybe with a small budget, say using uh, pay-per-click ads on Google or Facebook or something like that, just to get some traffic that isn't his friends and family, right? Some real third-party objective testers and have them come and take a look at it. And what kind of reaction does he get? And of course, it would be great if you could say in your pitch deck, we spent $100 on ads and we got $200 worth of interest, right? Now, that kind of equation speaks very loudly to investors. So I was suggesting to him that he try something like that uh, to get going. The other idea that folks 
proposed was that he look very carefully at competitors. Now, competitors don't necessarily need to be in the same industry. And this is where he was getting a little bit hung up because there is an existing company doing the same idea and they don't seem to be doing very well. So he wasn't his idea is he's going to disrupt them, right? So he doesn't want to compare himself to them. But that isn't our idea suggestion as much as looking at similar sort of rental and sharing platforms in other industries that have done well. So for example, one woman, uh, we had a lady in the room from Germany who suggested that there's a site out there and I don't know the name, uh, maybe some of you do, but that rents high-end fashion handbags for women and you can kind of share and swap in and out of the latest coolest looking purse right and I've heard of one that did uh, something like with wedding dresses right so there are lots of sites and I know there's some that do it for um, power tools uh, rental tools as well so there are sites like this out there so we suggested that this gentleman look at some of those sites and figure out what the business case was behind each of those and maybe if he could have some part of his pitch deck that kind of said, look, here's three examples and as far as we can tell, they raised this much money and they have this kind of margins and they're making this kind of money back for their investors, that makes a real valuable case very quickly. So that's the kind of idea that we suggested to present an initial uh, pitch to investors for someone who hadn't thought about that sort of thing before. Okay, so that's number two. I hope that's interesting as well. All right, so I'm just pretty much talking to myself here in the podcast format. So if this is helpful, please let me know that somebody's listening, and I'll do it again. All right, number three. So one of our gentlemen uh, asked a real nice general question that I know is a lot of interest to my readers, because a lot of you guys who have read um, Internet Riches or E-Riches 2.0 or, or Click Millionaires, you're at kind of the early stage of things. So you want to know... When do you know if your business idea is worth pursuing? So this is a very general question, right? Like you're just sitting there and you're like, I've got these ideas, maybe a bunch of them. How do I know if I should move forward? And this is especially intimidating if you've never done this sort of thing before, right? Maybe you have a real job and you're worried about the distraction of uh, time and money that you might sink into something on the side. And you're trying to figure out how do you know if it's worth pursuing? Now, I've literally I've literally written books about this, so I'm not going to go into all of it, but um, we talked a little bit about a framework for evaluating an idea. And if you look, especially if you're interested in a lifestyle business idea, I'd refer you back to my Click Millionaire's book as a good place to start. Uh, it's chapter three or four, I think. There are seven lifestyle business design principles in there that I know can be helpful to folks who are evaluating these similar sorts of problems. And these seven factors are um, kind of a an examination of your interests versus the market's demand. The trick is not to look at the supply, like that you want to do this or you want to sell things like this. That's a good start, but supply isn't the problem anymore. In fact, uh, there's a video of mine on uh, YouTube, on my YouTube channel. It's one of my most popular videos. It talks about the number one mistake that entrepreneurs make, and this is it. They think it's about supply. It's not. The internet offers infinite product selection and infinite distribution. So anything is available out there somewhere. Even the thing that you want to do, probably. Even if it's not a perfect replica, it's probably close enough in most cases. But what is not available easily it is demand. So demand is available, and you have to figure out how to aggregate your demand. 
and put that together, and that creates crossover between your interests and where the market actually needs help. And that's the first of the lifestyle business design principles. It's help people. And I mean help in a charitable way, but also just help and solve a problem sort of way. That's the first one. The other six principles are things like using software automation, outsourcing, recurring billing, um, and other factors that can help you design a business around something that you truly care about. So that's a sort of framework for evaluating things. And at the Masterminds Forum, uh, at mastermindsforum.com, we talk more about this. And um, I may be getting cut off here, so if I am, please uh, email radio at scottfox.com and let me know that it cut off. And uh, leave a review and share with your friends over at uh, iTunes or anywhere else that you listen to your podcasts. Now, um, to talk a little more about the – if I'm not cut off, I'm going to go on for a few more minutes here and talk about more specifically how to evaluate an idea that you have and you're kind of fixated on, um, assuming it gets through the other – many layers of criteria that I outline in the book and that we can discuss in the forum if you want to join. A couple ideas that came up from other folks in the masterminds meeting were to target people like yourself. And I thought this was interesting because a lot of people miss um, the goal of a business is to make money, of course, but it's also so that you can do something you enjoy. And a lot of people forget about the fact that any business has clients and you need to figure out that the activity you're doing is not going to be in isolation. It's going to lead to customer interactions. And if you can pick a hobby or a passion or an expertise that you have and use that to grow into a business that leads you to more interaction, here's the key, with people you like and enjoy being around, that's going to be a satisfying business even if you don't make a lot of money, and hopefully you'll get both because you're enthusiastic about it. So think about the customers, right? The example I used in the meeting last night was maybe you love motorcycles and you love working on them, but, and this is a made-up example, but, but maybe you don't like people that ride motorcycles. Well, it's going to be hard for you to have a good time <laughs> making money in your motorcycle business if you don't want to hang out with motorcyclists, right? So think through to who the people are that you're going to be approaching. For example, if you want to do social media for chiropractors, well, do you like chiropractors? <laughs> you know, or or are you gonna do? Uh, you want to start a photography business for weddings? Well, do you like dealing with brides? You know, you got to think about the people aspect of this as well as the supply that you have of your abilities and expertise. Some other important things to think about are differentiation. So, what's the service or product you're going to offer? Who else is out there? How can you be different? What's your secret sauce? What is it about you that's going to allow you to win the business? And you've got to have something these days, especially if you're offering something that can be delivered through the Internet. It's reachable worldwide. What can you do differently? Another example or uh, idea I thought was very interesting is the idea of prototyping. And this came from a Stanford uh, seminar I attended a couple months ago. Uh, there's a very popular course at Stanford these days about designing your life. And I think it's the, the most popular uh, course at the Stanford Design School these days. So I went to a seminar because the two professors that teach that uh, wrote a book about this. And, of course, I've written books about this, so I went to meet them and, and enjoyed the seminar. And one of their ideas that I've even adapted into my own businesses already is prototyping. If you're thinking about a business, what are the small steps you can do just to see if it has any traction, if it makes sense for you? Like you have this idea for an app or you have an idea for an events business or, you know, tech or not, what are the small steps you can do that will help you test it out? 
as an example, a minute ago we were talking about working with a certain kind of clients. Well, if you want to meet, uh, if you want to target uh, yoga teachers, well, maybe you should go to some yoga studios and some yoga meetups and some yoga conferences and just see, is, is, is this the kind of crowd you want to be associated with? What's a prototyping step that you can do? You know, give yourself three or four steps. I'm going to go to a couple events like this. I'm going to um, you know, have a logo designed or I'm going to uh, have lunch with three people in this field that know this stuff or I'm going to uh, commit to reading three books about this in the next month so that I have a broader education about this or listen to some podcasts or YouTube videos. You know, What are some concrete small steps so that you have – a better picture of the landscape and the steps that you need to take. And by starting with those smaller steps, it gets you into the mix of um, starting your business, which is obviously what you need to do. <laughs> and I pointed out that um, one of the big mistakes I see, well, it's not a mistake, I guess, but it, it's a mind shift that is really critical for entrepreneurial success. And I've seen this over and over with people. I, I've met legions of people, including many of you, my readers, who love to read stuff. <laughs> they love to think about it and they love to plan, but they're a little light on the action taking, right? There's lots of thinking. And I've met so many people that spend weeks, months, even years sometimes saying, I'm going to do this, or I plan this, or I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I'm going to build this, that kind of, all this future tense stuff. That's what you have to get past. If you're an entrepreneur, you don't have to have anything actually happening yet, but you do have to have the mindset that you're not going to do it. You are doing it. I am the founder of this company. I am building this app. I am leading this charge. I am doing this. Print up the business cards if you want to. Go old school, you know. Those little pieces of cardboard can really reify, uh, fancy word that means bring it to life. Bring to life your idea. You know, get yourself a business card that says, you know, Jane Smith, CEO, bestideainintheworld.com. Am this person. And just switching your own language out of the future tense to the present tense is a big and positive step that I recommend to any of you who are listening to this. Okay, next question. I've got about uh, 10 more minutes here, so we'll do a couple more. Again, this is um, a rehash, essentially, of the Masterminds meeting I had last night in Southern California. I hosted a room of about 40 people, and if this sort of thing sounds interesting to you, you can access it via forum. And we actually, you know, we do Google Hangouts, so we can do it face-to-face, -to -face too. I forgot about that part. <laughs> but we can do this face-to-face -face through Google Hangouts if you join the Masterminds Forum at mastermindsforum.com. Okay, so... Um, uh, let's see, this next one, um, let's see, I guess I already covered that one. Oh, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, incorporations and growth hacking, and then we'll be done. So um, where and how should I incorporate? Now, this gentleman had a lot of very good questions about um, avoiding uh, complications and liability by setting up a corporation. He wants to do a bunch of Amazon selling. And he's importing things from China, and this would the same sort of points would apply whether you're importing or selling your own stuff. Um, but he wants to set up a series of corporations that are separately identified without his name on the masthead, because apparently Amazon is very um, capricious, or you know, uh, sort of uh, arbitrary. Sometimes they will shut people down, uh, the same way that Google will do 
with AdWords accounts uh, and AdSense accounts, they shut people down without much warning too. Um, so he wants to set up several uh, different small companies and maybe even in different jurisdictions to protect himself. So uh, the problem is uh, not that he's doing anything uh, illegal. It's uh, I gather that Amazon will – they can penalize you say if you're reselling things uh, and someone makes a claim that your uh, goods are some sort of patent or copyright infringement or, or lodges a complaint, which may or may not be true, Amazon will freeze the account. And it's not that you necessarily did anything wrong. They're just protecting themselves, so they freeze your account, and that stops your cash flow. And so suddenly you can go out of business and because you owe a bunch of money that you were expecting to pay from your sales, but your sales are all held by Amazon. So apparently it's a – this is news to me and maybe you too, but apparently it's a good idea if you're an Amazon seller to have several companies that are not connected by a common name, address, or even IP addresses on your servers. So what were some of the comments about this? Well, there was an interesting discussion about incorporation. Um, California has um, a fairly uh, onerous $800 a year tax that every small company has to pay whether they make any money or not. I gather from the discussion that even if your corporations are headquartered in another state, you still have to pay it to California also. Um, so that might be worth checking into if you're a California resident. The most popular suggestions were, of course, Delaware, which is a well-known corporate um, uh, friendly corporate structure for uh, legal purposes over there. Um, Nevada, which is also well known for having lots of small companies. And uh, one of our members suggested that Wyoming was actually quite a good place to do, which was the first time I had heard that. So I don't have any more details, but those uh, could point you in the right directions. And of course, there's your own home state as well, uh, wherever you are, if you're not in one of those places I just mentioned. The uh, structure is probably going to be a uh, whatever corporate structure you'd like to look at, um, but the idea is that you want to have a couple different ones, so in case one of them gets in trouble, uh, whether deserved or not, the other ones can uh, can be uh, still uh, bringing in the cash flow from your sales. So that's a pretty technical area and uh, requires legal counsel to get in more, but I wanted to share those ideas with you both about Amazon and those different state names so that you can pursue that. And again, this is something we can pursue more in the Masterminds Forum if you have specific questions. Okay, and our last question, um, there were a bunch more last night, but um, that's probably about enough for today. We're going to talk about growth hacking a little bit. Um, one of our members has a new company. In this case, it's a software company that I had to say sounded very interesting. There's visualization software to help uh, kind of a combination of uh, design and uh, project management at the same time. So you could uh, – well, it, it doesn't matter. I guess the example, I thought it was intriguing um, – but uh, it would, this advice would apply to any company, even if it's something straightforward like a pizzeria or a shoe store. Uh, growth hacking is a buzzword of the day. So people kind of just wanted to know, what does that mean, and how can I get some? <laughs> so growth hacking is the idea that you use your marketing budget in very tactical, uh, bite-sized ways to specifically impact performance and conversion. So the old way of marketing was kind of like, say you have a budget, say it's $100,000, and you're going to spend it in uh, a certain combination of television, radio, and newspaper ads. That's kind of the way marketing used to be done. Um, these days, of course, things have changed a lot, and it's a lot, a lot more about maybe pay-per-click ads and uh, content marketing and link building for SEO and, of course, social media of all sorts, et cetera, et cetera. So growth hacking is really the idea is to – 
take a hacker's approach to this and find the pain points or the conversion points that you can affect the most by taking a thorough analysis of your traffic and your sales funnels and looking at the flow to find out where you can change things in small ways that will have the biggest impact on your sales and conversions. So there's a lot of rapid experimentation um, and um, deployment of small budget spend. So as an example, you might um, you might be selling something and uh, it's impacted, say, uh, by uh, certain celebrities' tweets. And uh, so you could maybe measure the impact that when that person tweets, uh, they impact your sales. Well, okay, when they tweet and they use this keyword, is it better than that keyword? And then you figure out which keywords are the best, and then you do more work specifically to get those keywords mentioned. That's just a kind of a made-up example. But it's that kind of very tactical, small small pieces of analysis that lead to increases in conversion. Or maybe you look at your website, and uh, the sign-up button is red, but maybe it should be blue. Uh, or it should be bit bigger or smaller, or uh, maybe the offer you're making uh, is could be changed. You know, often for an email sign-up, you they'll give you a free coupon or an ebook or something. So, so tweaking those offers and seeing which one converts the best—it's that kind of analysis of specific small use cases uh, that are part of a sales chain or sales funnel. Looking at those and saying, okay, I want to get a 10% lift on this. Because I know if I get 10% more people, say, on my email list or my, my Twitter followers, that that leads to this kind of sales ROI later down the line. And so you look at those different steps and try to tweak each one of them by analyzing the process and deploying small amounts of targeted capital and effort to improve them. That's growth hacking. So how to do that is, of course, a whole other discussion, uh, and um, that's uh, specific to each business, the niche, the marketing avenues that you're uh, pursuing, and so on and so forth. But um, hopefully that definition is useful to you in case you've heard that term growth hacking. Um, Maybe now you have a better understanding of what it is. So that's all I've got for you today. This is Scott Fox. I hope that's interesting. If it is, would you give me a shout-out at radio at scottfox.com? Anytime, now or in the future when you're listening to this, this is a podcast, so it should be out there for a while. I enjoyed speaking with you. I hope this is helpful. And if it is, please let me know, as I said. And also, please do a quick share once this posts to iTunes or over on Google Music or a Stitcher or wherever you're listening to the show. And uh, click the five-star rating if you could. And leave a little review and uh, give me your feedback. Uh, if it's negative feedback, please email me. <laughs> It's more of an experiment. If it's positive feedback, please share it with the world. (laughs) So that's all I've got for you today. If you're interested in this kind of coaching, please visit mastermindsforum.com, and you can sign up for the uh, forum there. There's a free trial, of course, and I'd be happy to work with you more directly one-on-one in the Masterminds Forum. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great day. Bye now.